0: Welcome to Trending in Education, Mike Palmer here. Really happy to have a third time appearance here. Yuki Terada is about to earn his Trending in Ed refrigerator magnet. Uh, Yuki was on with us once in early 2020, pre-pandemic. We had him back on later on as things were starting to pick up in terms of the pandemic. And now, at this point, Edutopia, where Yuki's the research editor, has done some really interesting work lately talking about teacher burnout and the amount of email and digital responsibilities that are now falling on teachers. And there's a really interesting article that Yuki just put out that we'll be talking about as part of today's show. Before we get into any of that, Yuki, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, and your role is interesting. You are a research editor for a nonprofit, Edutopia. Can you just remind folks what Edutopia is and what its mission is? Right. Edutopia is an
1: educational nonprofit. And I've been there for about 10 years now. And we do educational media. So we write articles, blog posts written by teachers. We go into schools and film what's working. So we're very excited to really showcase what's working in education and to help teachers navigate the world of educational research, effective strategies, classroom strategies.
0: Yeah, it's great stuff. And I've stayed on your mailing lists and track what you're putting out on Twitter and elsewhere. And that's part of where I saw this recent article titled Defending a Teacher's Right to Disconnect. Remember personal time? For many educators, technology has driven it toward extinction, and it's time to get serious about reclaiming it, which certainly captured my attention. And to my previous point, you know, last time we talked, it was relatively early in the pandemic, but the world of education has changed. You're focused really on K-12 education and the impact that the pandemic and the digital transformations we've seen in the last two years have had on what it means to be a teacher. Can you describe a little bit about what led you to write this article. And I will say it's really well-researched in that there is plenty of useful references to other articles and other research that is happening in the field. But can you describe a little bit about what drove you to write this article? This has been
1: an issue that we've been thinking about for a long time because it's hardly new. You know, The, the pandemic made things worse. But when you think about the big key issues around teacher time and teacher the work-life balance, these have existed for decades. Now let me let me go over three broad categories, three examples of where where we see kind of problems with teachers and work-life balance. So, first, out-of-pocket expenses. So we all know that teachers spend a lot of money on classroom supplies. Teachers also spend quite a lot of money on informal professional development. So, on average, teachers spend about five hundred dollars of their own money on classroom supplies about $300 on professional development. So that's almost $1,000 every year coming out of teacher's pocket mm-hmm. for things that are directly related to their work. And this has been an issue for pretty much as long as we can remember. This isn't anything new. Teachers also spend a lot of time working nights and weekends. The average high school teacher spends a couple of hours every weekend doing lesson planning and grading. And that's on top of the time that teachers spend during the week planning lesson, preparing for the next day. So we're seeing a a massive amount of time that teachers spend outside of normal school hours. So the 40-hour work week just doesn't really apply to teachers because they're spending a lot more time beyond those 40 hours doing grading and lesson planning and all the things that need to happen to get ready for class. On top of that, there's informal professional development. So we know from research that professional development It's most effective when it's authentic, when it's tied to actual classroom examples and situations. And a lot of the classroom development that teachers undergo is formal. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, the workshop model or it's participating in a PD program. But a lot of teachers also have to do a lot of learning on their own. They have to figure out how to teach individual kids. They have to figure out how to differentiate, they have to figure out the latest strategies that work, they have to stay up to date. You know, if a teacher went to grad school 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that information might be outdated. So teachers are continuously learning about how to teach and how students learn. So there are a lot of ways in which teachers spent extra time and resources, time and energy outside of the classroom. And this has been a problem for decades and it's nothing new. But what the pandemic did was it kind of exacerbated the And a lot of that was because when schools closed down and reopened, suddenly teachers have to pivot. You can no longer go to the old model of teaching where you had, you know, all your kids in the same classroom. Many teachers have to go to a remote model or they have to go to a hybrid model where, you know, some students were in the classroom and some students were remote and that led to a situation where teachers have to learn effectively how to become online instructors without any prior training. They had to do this rapidly. They had to do this quickly. And that led to this disconnect between the training that teachers had and what they actually had to do in the classroom. So you start to see kind of this deconstruction of the formal PD kind of path where teachers have sufficient training, sufficient support, the technical support, the equipment to be able to set up their their classrooms and even the time, because, you know, as we all know, when schools reopen, it's not like teachers had the luxury of taking weeks or months off to Mm -hmm. be able to learn how to do hybrid teaching or remote teaching. So that's how the stage is set for why I was interested in writing an article like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then in addition to all of what you're describing, there is now a closer relationship to parents that began really with the pandemic, where students were studying from home, parents were more familiar with that educational experience, and then many of the touch points between parents and teachers moved online, which included, whether it's an app or direct emails to and from parents, the boundaries that may have existed when you would have A couple of parent-teacher conferences, but the rest of the time, teachers were given more autonomy. Now, parents were getting more involved, and at the same time, there is a lot of concern around how much administration and other stakeholders were getting involved with the teachers' lives. Boundaries became a much more front and center topic, and that is something that the research in the article does talk a lot about that, and then an interesting corollary that I saw in in the research was that some of this was coming more out of maybe the professional setting and other types of careers where work-life balance and establishing boundaries and understanding how to drive towards better employee engagement, that isn't necessarily bridged into the teaching profession, but it did look like there's some really practical advice that you're providing in this article around how to structure a teacher's professional life so that they are able to protect some of those boundaries and hopefully avoid burnout and stay on a more positive note. Right, right, exactly. Traditionally, if you look at five, 10, 20 years
1: ago, there was kind of like an agreement that there are two spheres of work. There's the private sector and there's the public sector. And in the private sector, there was kind of an agreement that you get paid more, but your job security isn't as good. You can be fired, you know, for many reasons. But in the public sector, there's an agreement that you have better job security, you have better work-life balance. But as we all know, teachers don't get paid as well. So that's kind of the trade-off. It's it's an agreement that a lot of teachers understand when they start becoming a new teacher that the expectation is you're not going to get paid as well, but you have better work-life balance. But because of technology and because of the pandemic, you start seeing the lines between work and life, personal life balance being blurred, especially for teachers. And a lot of that is because of just the way that technology has evolved over the last couple of decades. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a teacher, let's say 20 years ago, you know, you, you wake up, you do some lesson prep, get into the classroom, you teach when you're done and you go home, you might take some work home with you, but for the most part, you know, you're taking home your work. You're taking home papers to create. You're taking home whatever lessons you have to plan for the next day or for the next week. But really, the crucial point here is that you took your work home with you. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, because of technology, because the way that technology has uh, permeated through our personal lives, you're no longer really taking your work home with you. Your work is home. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of invading your home. Remember those old bulky computers. Like, you know, in the nineties and, and two thousands, your, your Macs or your Apple IIc, you know, you, when you have a school issued work computer, your work for the most part stays on that computer. And when you go home, you have your home computer and there's, there's a very big wall between the two. But nowadays we have cell phones, you know, we have laptops. We're checking our working most from home. We're doing work from home. So that boundary between work and personal life is a lot more permeable. There's a very big difference nowadays with the nature of work and how work oftentimes kind of just exists in a home, especially in the last two years. Yeah. Because so many of us are working from home now, we don't necessarily have a setup at home that is distinct from our work. So that's a lot of the the big reasons why things are very different nowadays.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then there's a movement, uh, right to disconnect is one thing that I saw in here. I also saw you cited a 2017 study, which I had looked at, I think we even talked about it on Trending in Ed back then, about how our cognitive performance declines when a cell phone is even within arm's reach, and that we actually perform better when the cognitive load of thinking about what might be on our phone is removed from our lives. And there's a lot of research cited in your article and elsewhere that says the tax, the cognitive tax, the emotional drain that this constant on 24-7, always available mindset is weighing on us. It's something we're aware of in our professional lives. It's something that's more on the private sector side. There's more research about it. But it was really interesting for me to see that through the lens of a teacher. And then also the idea that there's a movement, you know, you do see it in Europe more now that, Employees' rights, among those rights are the ability to disconnect and actually have some time, some restorative time away from work that ultimately makes you better. You touched on that really throughout the article. Can you provide a little more detail around how this awakening, I guess, is starting to inform how we think about the teaching profession?
1: Let's talk about cognitive load and the, the cognitive tax.
0: So merely having
1: the presence of a cell phone We've seen this in studies on high school students and, and lots of studies on college students in particular. But we have seen that this in KP12. That simply having the presence of a cell phone is enough to get to be distracting. That you don't actually have to have, you know, those alarms going off or those notifications going off. Simply having that open channel is enough to draw cognitive resources away from whatever the student is trying to focus on. So for teachers, The same also applies that simply having your work email on your phone and knowing that at any time a student might have a question or a student might have a problem with technology, especially during the pandemic when teachers were spending so much time troubleshooting problems because of this rapid adoption of technology that you didn't want your next day, you didn't want to spend, you know, half of your next day troubleshooting problems. Because once you start doing that, then everything cascades and you're late. And then, you know, if your lesson gets late, it's not like you have a lot of space to kind of just delay everything. Because on top of the curriculum, you also have to spend time making sure that students are able to actually access the lessons, and able to learn to do their whole work and to be able to actually use, you know, whatever LMS that you're taking and mm-hmm. not have these small technical issues kind of obstruct Student learning, just the mere fact that a teacher can check email, then an email can come in at any time and that this email might be the kind of email that needs to be addressed immediately. It's enough to kind of distract teachers from their own personal lives. So, I mean, it's called an always on mentality. Mm -hmm. The idea that a teacher is always a teacher 24-7, that they can't go home and, you know, be themselves and not have to think about teaching or not have to think about their students. And of course, you know, teachers are altruistic. They're always thinking about their students. But when you have a student that is having a problem, you know, a technical problem late at night, that will prevent them from being able to participate the next day. It's very difficult. It's very challenging for teachers to be able to just, you know, shut that off right. and ignore it. And that's not a position that we should be putting teachers in. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have teachers be in a position where they're trying to troubleshoot technical problems 24-7. Where they're spending weekend answering emails and addressing concern, so a lot of this isn't just identifying the issues but also kind of creating the boundaries, making the boundaries more explicit and saying that these aren't problems that get solved on their own that we need to be very intentional about protecting a teacher's personal space about protecting about maintaining that work-life balance because if we aren't intentional about that we can have severe and and have a, a, reduction in mental health well-being. Right. Like we need to make sure these aren't just like technical issues. These re- are related directly to teacher stress mm-hmm. and teacher workload and being overloaded with work and just the health of the profession in general. Right. We want to make sure that teachers aren't getting burned out and we know that teacher stress is one of the main reasons why teachers quit profession. And we want to make sure that we're creating an environment where they can work, where they can actually teach students and not have to spend so much time doing all of the other tasks. You know, the study last year where researchers found that nearly half of all teachers spent 20 or more hours per week creating new lessons and adapting materials to online classrooms and troubleshooting tech issues. And this was on top of their workload pre-pandemic. This mm-hmm. is just brand new. These are new tasks, new responsibilities that teachers had to adopt and respond to because of the pandemic. We had to ensure that students are learning without the interruption from technology or pandemic issues.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And we've talked on the show a bunch about the great resignation, the great reshuffle, quiet quitting, which is a term that drives me crazy, but it's out there and we have to talk about it. It is a real problem in the teaching profession where how do you attract talent? How do you retain them? And to me, it also speaks to the idea of FOMO, the fear of missing out. When you have your phone, you never know what might've come in. And some of the things that are happening in other parts of the world, France recently adopted new labor laws back in 2016 around expectations, around when you can check email, when you should be expected to be engaged in that type of activity versus elsewhere. You did have some takeaways at the conclusion of the article around what should be under consideration. I will say on a personal level, it did make me remember to be empathetic when, as a parent, I'm concerned about something and I want to reach out to the teacher. My son's pre-K teacher is kind enough to give us his email address. When I send him an email, remember that there are many other demands on teachers these days and to be empathetic. So that was, I think, a good note for parents out there. But I think there was other ideas around really probably more on how to manage teachers and how to be an administrator that are included in your article. Can you walk through some of those to kind of help us understand a little better how we might be able to protect teachers and protect the profession in these challenging times?
1: Yeah. So one of the first steps is to survey your teachers and get a really good sense of what's happening because every school is unique and different schools will be resourced differently. So some schools may have a technical department that can handle all of these technical issues, you know, an IT department. Other schools may not. So it's very important to understand what your teacher's needs are and how you can support those needs. Get down with your teachers and get a sense of how big of a problem this is What's the scope of the problem and what can we do to address it? Because if you're not actively surveying your teachers and getting a sense of what's happening, you might not have any idea how many emails they're responding to, how many emails are coming into their inbox? You might have no idea of how much time they spend troubleshooting technical issues. That's a big drain on their personal time, and that can have very serious impact on their ability to teach and ultimately students' learning. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to survey your teachers, to really understand what the problem is, and to Figure out how we can address
0: it. Just to jump in real quick, the average teacher receives up to 100 emails a day, based on some of the research that's cited in this article. Right. That was that was kind of mind blowing to me because I didn't I didn't realize the scope of email volume. That's right on par with like a management position in the private sector, and in those cases, emails a much bigger part of your job. It almost seems like there's a job design problem for. Teachers nowadays, a lot of new responsibilities have been quietly added to their plate, and there hasn't been enough thoughtful job design to kind of clear some of that noise from their jobs so that they're able to be more effective.
1: Right. Email is so ubiquitous nowadays. It's very easy to kind of have a sense that it's not really a problem, but especially if, you know, you're a high school teacher and you have hundreds of kids. You know, that's hundreds of families that are potentially trying to contact you. So it's a pretty big problem. And related to that is the idea that we should be creating boundaries around what time teachers are expected to respond to email. Because if you think about things like 20 years ago, now if there was an emergency, you would call up a teacher, right? And the teacher would know that's a clear emergency. But aside from that, you know, once school ends and the teacher goes home, They weren't really expected to respond to minor questions that could be answered the next day. But when emails come in, you don't necessarily know the nature of those emails until you read the subject line. So if you get, you know, 50 emails, you kind of have to chug through them all to be able to identify which ones are important and which ones aren't. And that alone, just managing email, aside from responding to email, just managing email, the influx of emails alone is a huge train on time. And it's not something that you can put off because if a student has a question about, let's say, a lesson, you don't want to start the next day without that student having not done, you know, studying at home because now that's time taken away from in-classroom instruction. You also want to model, it, it's not just about telling teachers to disconnect or telling teachers what they should do, but make it part of the culture. Make it part of the school culture, especially from school leadership, principals, administrators. For example, one small thing that's pretty effective is scheduling email. So if you're sending an email at 9 PM, it's not important. You can write it and you can draft it, but schedule it for the next day. If it's not critical, then teachers should probably shouldn't be receiving it at night because receiving an email at night is almost like that late night phone call. You can't tell if it's an emergency and there's a lot of pressure to respond to emails when they come in.
0: Yeah. And, and then there are other advice here about trying to give yourself more as a teacher the grace that you're also exercising for your students and the families that you're working with. Also, allow yourself the freedom from notifications, the freedom from all the interruptions. Uh, although at the same time, I do understand the psychological challenge that we're all facing where we're coming out of this period where you didn't know when class might be canceled or you may suddenly need to teach from home and suddenly somebody tests positive in your class and you need to be able to know in real time to stay on top of things, to stay ahead. So while I understand the recommendations based on the research and the stuff that we all need to do to build those boundaries, in some ways we've been conditioned to be hyper vigilant and totally plugged in. And I imagine teachers in particular who are on the front lines of all this these days, it's gotta be really hard to unplug.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point you raised, Mike. Understandably, when the pandemic happened, teachers did have to be online quite a lot, a lot more often, just because they had to do so much work with addressing issues at CIMA. But we have to make sure that that doesn't become the new normal, that being always on, having that always on mentality and being vigilant about checking emails that we need to make sure that we pull back from that and that we really just bring things back to a more reasonable level where if it's an emergency, then call the teacher, otherwise save for the next day. Because we know that being able to disconnect and meal able to have that personal time is not just beneficial for the teachers, it's beneficial for students as well because you'll yeah. see teachers doing a better job teaching. Teachers who are happy and healthy will have happier and healthier students.
0: Absolutely. And it's also as we maybe pivot beyond this particular research effort, it also looking ahead is a time if assuming we're going to continue to use the digital tooling that in some ways was a benefit, it was certainly a, a byproduct of the pandemic, but now there's new tools that are maybe a little better integrated. We also think about our digital presence a little more centrally nowadays. To me, it opens up questions around how do we think about Other roles that may need to be added, whether it is almost like a concierge or an instructional designer, are there new models emerging around team teaching and sort of equipping the team that is necessary, the village that is necessary to provide effective education to partition the responsibilities enough so that teachers are able to refocus on their classroom and then the other needs are supported in other ways. Are, are you seeing anything new emerging, any new models that are out there? Well, we're
1: seeing much more attention being paid to the technological infrastructure of schools. And one way that this has come up, it's actually pretty interesting, is because of cybersecurity, because of the recent LAUSD hacking. Schools are being targeted because they have weak technological infrastructure. And if hackers can come in, steal student data, It's one thing to get your data stolen as an adult, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know to have your Social Security number or personal information being stolen as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know now you have a lifetime of headache. So we have to make sure that we're protecting kids. The same way the pandemic helped to reveal a lot of the inequities in education. Right now we're seeing these issues crop up because when you have a, a school or a district that doesn't have adequate resources to have a robust technological infrastructure, then you can have these situations where that weakness is being exploited in this case by hacking. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have a robust IT team, not just to benefit teachers, but just for the overall technological health of the school. It's something that if we don't address, it'll just buy this later on. In surprising ways
0: yeah i still remember bart simpson hacking into the springfield school system to change (laughs) his grades which was many years ago but but those types of things are becoming real and to your point hackers are looking for the less secure more valuable for lack of a better word systems for ransomware opportunities in particular and that's one where as you're mentioning the la school district was recently hacked and you know That's just what goes public. A lot of those types of breaches and those types of attacks frequently are handled below the public attention because frequently that's what the hackers are threatening the school district with, which is really interesting. As we're getting closer to conclusion here, Yuki, I'd love to hear more since you're doing regular research and you do have newsletters for folks to sign up for. Also, if folks are interested in finding any of that stuff, please let us know where they should go. But I'd love to get Maybe some teases from you in terms of other areas of research, other things that are bubbling up that you think are worth us paying attention to.
1: Yeah. So we have our weekly newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday and that's our most interesting content for for the week or for the month, but we have a, a brand new newsletter called the research is it and it's research specific. So it's pretty robust. We have a lot of original content that goes into that newsletter. We have research highlights that you can't get on Edgetopia or anywhere else. We write these specifically for the newsletter, where we summarize four or five really interesting, really relevant pieces of our research that are recent. We also showcase our recent research articles, So anything I've written or anything that our other writers or other journalists have written for Edgetopia. And all of that comes monthly in our researchers and newsletter. So that's really exciting. And you should sign up if you're interested in research. I'll say, hope you are because you're listening.
0: Absolutely. And then anything else out there in the world, any other research articles that might be worthy of a deeper dive, anything else bubbling up that you think is worth noting? We can include the links in the show notes if there's anything else you wanted to touch on.
1: Yeah, so my last article was looking at the psychological cost of high stakes tests. And really what I wanted to do was take a look at what's happening inside a student's mind not just when they take the test, not just looking at anxiety or cognitive load, but also looking at what are the health consequences before the test and after the test. What are the consequences for student identity? I came across a lot of very interesting research, for example, looking at third graders who are taking standardized tests. You know, in third grade, they're they're too young to be aware of what a standardized test is, but they know that it has an impact, and they don't necessarily know the difference between something that is summative versus something that is formative. Like, you know, these are teacher words. They don't know that if they take a standardized test, that it's not necessarily a reflection of their own ability, but it's just a diagnostic tool that the school is using for aggregate student-level data. But students, when they're sitting, you know, in the classroom, just filling out Scantron forms and taking a test, which is pretty aggressively trying to identify their vocabulary knowledge or their math knowledge or their science knowledge, they don't necessarily understand the distinction between, oh, this is a test of my own personal skills and abilities and knowledge versus, oh, this is something that the school is using. So we're seeing kind of this huge cost, this huge psychological cost of these tests. And we're not really doing a good job telling students that all the stress that they're experiencing, all the anxiety, these are high stakes tests for the schools. The students are oftentimes thinking that these are high stakes tests for themselves when they're young, when they're in elementary school. And that's on top of all the research that we know about high school students feeling stressed out about tests yeah. and feeling like these tests aren't necessarily a reflection of their learning or even the reflection of their own identities. Because oftentimes students will excel in school, yet not do well on the test. And now they're questioning know whether or not they're a good student. They're questioning whether or not like they're a math person simply because of how they're performing on these tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is on top of you know, the sleepless nights, ramming, and all of the stress that happens before a test and during a test. So that's my latest article. And I delve really deep into the research. And I take a close, hard look at not just the impact of tests as you're sitting down, but what are kind of the larger consequences of high-stakes tests and what's happening to students?
0: Yeah, it's a great read. I did just check it out. You are outlining the movement towards test optional. It's also interesting research about cortisol levels and stress hormones and the level to which some of us are triggered. It is fight or flight. Some of us are a little more ready to fight. But those of us who might be better at those tests are more likely to have been raised in a culture of privilege where testing is sort of baked into how we operate from an early age. And it isn't always a reflection of how we're going to do later on, whether it's in college or in our professional lives, where increasingly what's being measured is the ability to collaborate, the ability to engage socially and flex other skills that maybe a traditional standardized test isn't necessarily going to Capture really interesting read. Always interesting to stay on top of the work that Yuki and the folks at Edutopia are doing. I would recommend it. We're going to include links on the show notes for this episode. As we're wrapping up, Yuki, I do like to give folks some parting shots, some closing thoughts as we conclude here. What should folks take away from this conversation as we're wrapping up?
1: Folks should take away the idea that oftentimes teachers are experiencing things. That aren't very easily shared in a public setting or in a school setting or with Mm -hmm. parents or with administrators and all of this research isn't necessarily to solve things because sometimes the first step is knowing that there is an issue that knowing that there is a problem knowing that teachers are being overwhelmed with work or teachers are feeling like they don't have enough space to themselves at home enough space to spend time with their friends and family so for me, a lot of this research isn't really just trying to figure out what the solutions are, because sometimes we have to get a, a good sense of what the problem is. We have to get a good sense of what teachers are feeling and experiencing, and then we can use that as a starting point to start talking about solutions. But you can't solve a problem if you don't know that it is in the first place. And a lot of these problems are hidden. A lot of these problems are very difficult to bring to the surface because when you're talking about like the boundaries between work and private life like that's not something that you necessarily see in the classroom or it's not something that surfaces you know during conversation at school it's something that you really have to dig into and you really have to be proactive and intentionally talk to teachers to get a sense of what the scope of the problem
0: Absolutely. As GI Joe used to say, knowing is half the battle. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to at least raise the awareness and then operate from a place of grace and empathy. Just like we've been talking about how grace and empathy are important with students, it's critically important for teachers. And it's wonderful that the work that you and folks at Edutopia are doing is really an advocacy role for teachers, a place where they can feel like they have that support. So good on you. And thanks again for joining Yuki Torada, the research editor at Edutopia. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Mike. Wonderful being here. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. We'll include links to all the research and articles that Yuki was referring to in our conversation today. If you like what you heard, please write us a review, subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.